You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best Christian scholarship, the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And yes, today we're back to Christian scholarship and apologetics. We had Tim O'Neill on last week, our first atheist guest, helping us to destroy uh, the idea that the, the uh, so-called Middle Ages were Dark Ages, and dealing with someone we're talking about even more today, and that's Richard Carrier, who you all know, I like to say, is my uh, favorite unemployed party and most prominent internet blogger who's banned from Skepticon, Richard Carrier. But, you know, the thing with Richard Carrier is a lot of scholars don't really pay a lot of attention to him. If you're on the internet you and you're an atheist, you tend to think he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Many people in scholarship just don't know. But what if someone in scholarship did decide to look at his arguments? In fact, let's go so far as say, oh, I don't know. They decide to do their dissertation on him. Well, that is the case here. Ross Hickling actually decides to do that, looking at Carrier's arguments for resurrection. Who is he? He's retired as a senior inspector of the U.S. Marshals Service in 2014 after serving in federal and local law enforcement for 26 years. During his career in law enforcement, he functioned in various investigative roles to include a narcotics detective, SWAT team operative, threat investigator, seized assets investigator, fugitive investigator, and sex offender investigations coordinator. Midway through his career of the U.S. Marshals Service, Ross began to pre- prepare for a career in ministry after retirement when he began his seminary education. Since that time, Ross has earned a B.S. in Religion at Liberty, an M.A. in Religion at Liberty again, and an M.A. in Christian Apologetics from Biola, and a Ph.D. in Missiology Christian Apologetics from Northwest University, Pochfestrum Campus, South Africa. My apologies if I totally botched that wording. Ross worked under the supervision of Professor Dr. Hinks Toker while completing his thesis at NWU, Poch critiquing a skeptic's challenge to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. During his time with the U.S. Marshal Service and while completing his studies, Ross realized the need to bring evidentiary principles to his study of Christian apologetics. Since retiring, Ross founded Shields Your Faith, an organization dedicated to sharing the great reasons for faith in Jesus Christ from an evidentiary perspective, took part in the International Apologetics Campaign in the Philippines, South Africa, and currently teaches apologetics on a seminary level at Charlotte Christian College and Theological Seminary. He is currently the chapter director at a Ratio Christi Club at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. He's married to Andrea, or is that Andrea, he can tell us, his lovely wife of 29 years, has two adult children, and resides in Connorsville, North Carolina. Dr. Hickling, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Hey, great, Nick. Great to be 
to be here. Thanks for having uh, me. Is your wife Andrea or Andrea? It's Andrea. Okay. You got to make sure you get the wife's name right on the air, you know? Oh, definitely. That's definitely something you definitely need to do. But you did do pretty well with the Pachef's room pronunciation, so congrats Oh, on that. good. And I'm kind of curious. Is, is this your first interview on this topic? It is, actually. Nice. Glad I got to you first here. Okay. So if my audience doesn't know much about you, we've heard your academic bio, but how did you get to be doing what you're doing? Right. So I've always been uh, active in social issues with uh, the intersection of culture and my mm -hmm. faith uh, since my very earliest days and uh, going into prisons and hanging out with prisoners and, and singing and, and just sharing uh, my faith from a very early age again. And then my father, he also was an employee of something called the um, Freedom Council, which was an educational uh, group that was dedicated to showing the roots, the Christian roots, the Judeo-Christian roots of our um, country. So he started bringing home books uh, for me to read, and I was in my teens. And so I, I started reading way back then about uh, the intersection of my faith with culture and, and how we need to be involved uh, with our culture. And so uh, as time progressed from that early time, I ended up becoming a law enforcement professional, five years with the Portsmouth City, Virginia Police Department, uh, had a wonderful experience there, and then was uh, uh, lucky enough, fortunate enough to go on with the U.S. Marshal Service with my law enforcement career. And about halfway through, I started thinking about, hey, I'm getting kind of old now, so I might as well think about what I do after my law enforcement career. So that's when I started in earnest my career, uh, my academic career with the uh, Liberty University degrees, Biola, et cetera. And as I started into this, as I started wading into my scholastic career, I then became acquainted with uh, the claims of a, a number of these uh, atheist authors who I would call maybe a little bit radical because it seemed like they were very inflamed against Christianity instead of giving a positive view of, of what their beliefs are and were, they started more attacking uh, the Christian faith. And that's sort of what got me into looking at their books and their writings. And that's when I became acquainted with Richard Carrier, and he was making some strong claims about the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as a curious person, somebody who's an investigator who likes to dig, I started looking at his material. And so that's kind of how I got involved with this project. Mm -hmm. Have you had any personal or email interactions with Carrier yet? No, I have mm -hmm. not, but I uh, look forward maybe to some in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've already told you what to expect in the book review, the whole thing's like, liar, doesn't understand, didn't read, things like that and such. Okay, well, you know, I'm always willing to uh, take some constructive criticism, so I'm willing to, to hear whatever he has. As, you know, but, uh, of course, uh, in my law enforcement career, I am used to taking abuse at some point from people in that sort of field. So if, if somebody, um, you know, abuses me in that way, it, it shouldn't upset me too much. Mm -hmm. Now, something that readers might be interested in, they might want to upfront your book on this topic, and we'll be telling people how they can, get, how they can buy it. It doesn't yet, at this point, deal with the whole thing that he's come out with in the past few years that Jesus never even existed, for instance. Your book mainly focuses on the resurrection, right? 
Yeah, it does focus on the resurrection. It does uh, touch on the fact that he does believe that uh, Jesus Christ was a mythical character and that he uses these arguments to prove that contention. Mm -hmm. Do you think there could be a future book coming out from you specifically looking at his book on the historicity of Jesus? I mean, this sort of treats uh, some of that material Mm -hmm. when we're talking about dying and rising gods because, again, um, he does rely on that. He does a lot rely on the fact that he believes that if there were disciples of Jesus, that they hallucinated it, um, mm-hmm. you know, the contradictions, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, of course, relying on the Christians, early Christians, relying on dying and rising gods as a foundation for the resurrection that they created. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it kind of does go into some of that material, mm-hmm. definitely, but it doesn't actually analyze his entire perspective because that would that would be a, a very large work because he is a very busy writer mm-hmm. now it, we are going to spend some time talking about each section of a book looking at the parts because there are three of them all together but let's start with a place that many people don't start and that's actually your methodology I mean, how do you go about evaluating what counts as evidence and such Right. Well, the first thing that came to me as as I started looking at this material was that my career as a law enforcement investigator really was applicable to uh, applying it to this discussion. Because uh, like the resurrection claims of Christians, uh, uh, his claim that Jesus Christ uh, is a mythical character and, and these other things that I have in my book are historical claims. Because the Christian would say Jesus Christ historically arose from the dead, but then Richard Character would historically say that Jesus Christ uh, did not exist, and these are some of the reasons why. So these are all uh, questions about historicity, and because of the fact that uh, these are questions of historicity, then actual evidentiary uh, principles would apply. So what I did is I basically went back into my career and sort of synthesized and and distilled all of the accepted principles of evidence that investigators use and that also judges and juries use as well to come upon whether evidence is reliable or relevant or not. So that's what I did. I went back into my career, and uh, in particular, I went to the federal pattern jury instructions that judges across the United States and other countries use to advise juries on how to handle evidence. So that's one uh, set of documents that I went to. I also went to the Federal Rules of Evidence, which are um, very gold standard uh, rules that are used every day across the country to talk about how we should use evidence. So these are the two um, basic documents that I use, the Federal Rule of Evidence and also Federal Pattern Jury Instructions to distill these accepted principles of evidence that I use. You know, with all the hearings going on about the Supreme Court and such right now, people are having a lot of talk about what counts as evidence and what doesn't. So could you flesh that out a little bit more? I mean, what are some of these rules and such that are used? Well, right. Thank you. Yeah, um, basically, um, there's some very simple principles. This isn't rocket science. Basically, you're looking for people that would be witnesses directly, mm-hmm. historical witnesses. In the case of uh, these claims of the resurrection, do you have historical witnesses that discuss what they saw and what they heard? 
And also, do they have the ability to actually have heard and have seen what they're talking about? So that's uh, another, that's one principle of evidence. You have circumstantial evidence or indirect evidence where you can look at a set of circumstances and then you can come upon uh, looking at these circumstantial evidence, you can start making inferences by looking at a chain of circumstances or events that happen. That's another way to look at evidence. And, and of course, you've been hearing a lot about in the hearings about corroboration or strengthening or confirmation of evidence. And that is another principle that's important in this work is are carriers claims corroborated or are the Christian claims corroborated about the resurrection? So that's another important principle. Um, of course, in uh, doing any sort of exposition from evidentiary principles, you're looking for relevant evidence. Uh, is the actual information that somebody's using as evidence, does it actually tie to what they are pr trying to prove, the exact uh, point that they're trying to prove? So relevant evidence is uh, something that's also very important. That's Federal Rule of Evidence 401. And also... If you're talking about facts, if somebody's saying, hey, I have a fact to uh, undergird what I'm trying to prove, are your facts actually based on proof? So you need to actually supply proof to your supposed facts or else you, they shouldn't be considered as facts. So these are a number of the basic uh, principles that I'm using as criteria to analyze not only the resurrection accounts in the New Testament, but also Richard Carrier's uh, assertions to uh, the resurrection as well. You mean when we're arguing with our atheist friends on the internet or in person, they can't just come up and say, I have an opinion, therefore that counts as evidence? Right, exactly. Um, if somebody has conjecture, well, we can take it as conjecture. It might be something interesting to consider. Or if somebody says, this is my opinion, well, I mean, we can listen to it as opinion, but if he's saying that I have evidence then what is your evidence? It needs to be one of these forms. It either needs to be a, a historic uh, witness that you're relying upon, somebody who's written a book, or it needs to be um, a set of circumstances that prove their point, and it needs to be relevant, not just my opinion, like you mm. said, Nick. Okay, well, let's uh, consider this. Like, in light of the hearings going on, uh, I mean, Ford came forward and said, well, here are some witnesses of the event. Now, I'm not interested in talking about the truthfulness or falsity of the claims at all, but the thing is, the FBI could go out and talk to these witnesses at this point. Isn't it a bit different when we're dealing with the New Testament claims? Because the witnesses are all dead right now. Right. So basically what you would have is historical witnesses that would be making their claims. And of course, you have a number of those for the resurrection. But then you would also try to look at claims being put forth by somebody in antiquity on the behalf of Richard Carrier. And so if somebody says that the uh, the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ came from dying, preceding dying and rising pagan gods, then you should be able to see some sort of information that would point you to that direction as far as uh, documents from historical witnesses that show the actual handoff between a pagan cult and, say, early Christians. And that's, uh, I think, a, a major problem here is that there are no historical witnesses that show some sort of um, handoff from pagan cults to the early Christian church. As a matter of fact, you see positive evidence showing that there was not any handoff when you uh, plumb the, 
the readings of the New Testament, it's, it's obvious that the resurrection does not come from pagan dying and rising gods. It comes from uh, Jewish uh, theories and, and scriptures coming from the Old Testament. Yeah, but the, the difference is that we can't directly talk to the witnesses in the case of the New Testament. We can't go and say, okay, Matthew, tell us about what you saw and such. So what makes, how do we go in and really examine the claim since we can't question the witnesses? Right, exactly. So then you would uh, t- talk about chain of custody. Um, that's another principle in, in uh, the criminal justice field. Chain of custody, in other words, say if I had a gun on the street and I, and I wanted to produce it in court, I would have to show that it's the same gun that I took off the street and that I'm producing in court when I use it as evidence against a defendant. So what I would do is I would inscribe the gun with my initials. I would put it in packaging with my initials all over it. I would hand it over to somebody, and uh, that person would keep it for me. Then I would come and collect it back again. And then I would take this weapon in front of a judge. The same thing with with, uh, the New Testament scriptures. We have a great chain of custody where we see the uh, scriptures going from generation to generation to generation. And uh, so we have a great chain of custody. We have information knowing that these authors were in fact who they the early church says they were i know that's one contention carrier has we don't know who the new testament authors were but everyone else in antiquity did because we have a number of people writing about who the authors were from uh you know the second century on yeah you know when i'm hearing some of this i'm reminded of what my friend uh, jay warner wallace also says in his work, and that should be too surprising because it's the same field pretty much, isn't it? Yeah, Jim Wallace, uh, he really has a wonderful book, his Cold Case Christianity. Mm -hmm. It's a standard that everybody who's interested in these uh, sorts of discussions should purchase. And if anybody's interested, by the way, he has been on our show three times. Once Cold Case Christianity, Cold Case Christianity for Kids, and God's Crime Scene. So if you're interested in that, go back and listen to those interviews. But, you know, we we could say, where we have a whole stack of uh, people who say that, say, Matthew wrote Matthew. I mean, all our sources I talk about, I think, do say Matthew wrote Matthew. We don't have any contrary theory, but to be fair, that doesn't mean they're all right, though, does it? I mean, I I don't know uh, 100% that that's the case. But what I'm saying is that accepted principles of evidence would show us that Matthew is the author. Of course, that you can't know anything with total and complete certitude from our perch here in the 21st century. However, the evidence that we have points to Matthew as the author and uh, the other uh, gospel authors as well. So unless you have some sort of um, large amount of countervailing evidence, then a principle is that you should accept the evidence until it's contradicted. Mm-hmm. And some, so I think we should be confident in who the uh, the traditional view of the Christian authors are. I always like to say this when I'm in my debates with skeptics. As soon as they bring forward something, and I'll give a counter to it, and such, and they don't really say anything. You give back some sort of answer. Look, you've presented an argument. I've given a defeater to your argument. Unless you can show my defeater is wrong, or produce something different then my argument stands until otherwise. And that, that is how it goes legally and such, isn't it? That is, yeah, that is how it goes. I mean, 
uh, evidence should be accepted unless you can really convincingly impeach the historical witnesses. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing that I do in the book from a um, law enforcement uh, accepted principles of evidence perspective. I show what you would need in order to impeach a historical witness. It's something we've also seen with these hearings going on, because I'm sure you've looked at Facebook some and seen it, is that people are often looking to say, well, she or he sure sounded credible, they sure sounded convincing, and it's too easy to let emotion then guide our principles and such. So what steps do we take to counter that kind of thing? So if if you're saying you're watching something on Mm -hmm. TV... Um, I guess you would uh, put the same uh, principles into perspective. Uh, how much corroboration do you have? And, and you've heard that term bandied about a lot. Um, for like one witness, does that person have a lot of um, evidence, people that have seen them together at the, at the place, state, and time? And, and that's another thing. Um, with the gospel authors, of course, you have it historically situated in the correct time frame and uh you you know that that was a question in these hearings was what was the exact time frame what was the location um you know and plus again strengthening of evidence these are things that i would actually want to see if i'm looking at something and trying to judge the credibility of something is there circumstantial evidence is there um historical witnesses that can come forward and, and corroborate things and of course, um, if there are witnesses, can you impeach them properly? And so these are the, the things that I would say, mm-hmm. Nick. Yeah, and by the way, for those out there listening, this uh, this interview was arranged well over a month ago. It's just happy circumstances that came about the same week as this whole thing is going on and such. But what I'm, I'm wondering, though, about Dr. King is how can we, when we're investigating the claims, avoid emotion and bias best? Because, I mean, let's face it, you and I, we're both Christians, and you went into your investigation being a Christian. How would, couldn't someone just say, well, of course that's where you came out, and you're biased. And with these hearings going on, we are, we're all prone to look and say, well, that, that testimony that person gave really, really touched me, or really, you know, it gave us an emotional reaction, and we can t- too often say that equals truth. How can we avoid those kinds of things? Yeah, you know, honestly, Nick, I don't think that we we can avoid it completely yeah. and totally because we've had our subjective experiences. So Dr. Carrier might have objective, exper- or excuse me, subjective experiences that lead him to believe that, um, that God does not exist yeah. and that, you know, uh, these points that are being brought about by Christians of a uh, that Jesus Christ died and arose from the dead, he might you know have a, a subjective reason. Also, in addition to his objective material that he's trying to bring forward, so I think it's hard to um, make a total and complete separation. But I think what an honest investigator needs to do, and this is one of the things that I said in the forward of the short forward of this book, um, was that we need to actually really seriously consider what he says, because the truth is, is if Jesus Christ did not arise from the dead, then what we're doing as Christians is all in vain. So it is an important question. Mm -hmm. But I think basically when you apply these accepted principles of evidence, it helps you, it guides you. Okay, how much evidence do I really, real evidence do I actually have for my claim? 
well, I've got X, Y, and Z. Well, if someone else has just maybe half of X or nothing at all, it's, it's basically um, opinion and conjecture, then uh, that, w- that would cause me to wonder if my um, view is really justified historically. Because, again, we're talking about a historical question here about a historical event, and therefore these evidentiary principles apply. So, yeah, I would, I would say applying these criteria would, would help against a total and complete subjective blitzkrieg. And, of course, that's one of the reasons why in New Testament scholarship there is such a thing as peer reviews, that you can let even your critics look at your work, and they might not agree with your case, but they'll say, you've at least provided some evidence for your case. Exactly right. Now, let's start looking into the material itself. I mean, the first part there is about the resurrection narratives, and it starts out with something that we all agree is pretty obvious, that when you look at the different narratives in the four Gospels, and we could include Paul's account in 1 Corinthians 15, some of this, there are differences. Now, Differences, does that automatically equate to contradictions? Right, exactly. I mean, the question that you ask is a good one. And uh, I think when you look at the actual definition of contradiction, then you see that it's a very stark um, definition. Basically, if something, if one set of information is contradicting another set of information, then there, there is going to be no overlap at all. It's sort of like, if you have a Venn diagram of, of number sets and there's no intersection whatsoever, then that would be what would be considered a contradiction where uh, the information has no overlap at all whatsoever. But I think what we have in the gospel uh, resurrection accounts and also Paul's account is you have an overlapping. You have def- definitely differences, but uh, contradictory information, I'm not so sure about that. And also um, the fact is that when you have different uh, witnesses that are testifying, it's not that a witness will contradict another witness, but a witness can contradict himself. So what you have here is you have four different witnesses talking about the same event. So basically it's hard you know, with this to actually say that one witness is contradicting another one, unless they, unless they give contradictory testimony that is totally and completely different, sort of like the Venn diagram I just described. Mm-hmm. Now, when I was watching the hearings this week, though, I remember a Senator Blumenfarthing was saying, false in one thing could lead to falsity in our things. So let's suppose we did find some sort of contradiction. We found that uh, one of the gospel writers was wrong on something. Does that mean we should question then even more stringently everything he says, that he's automatically wrong in everything at that point? Well, I mean, I I, I might not actually say that he was wrong in what he said. He he might uh, say something as far as a resurrection that's totally and completely different, mm-hmm. or that might be um, supplemental to what another uh, gospel writer said. But yeah, if if they're differing, then to me, as an investigator, that just means that they're coming from a totally and completely different perspective. Mm -hmm. For those who weren't present, for those authors who weren't present, they were probably talking to different witnesses. Mm -hmm. Different witnesses are going to see things a little differently and from their perspective. For instance, 
John does not mention all of the the women witnesses to the resurrection, but he prominently uh, references Mary, of course, and that's because Mary came to him, and uh, so his whole uh, introduction to the risen Jesus Christ comes from Mary, so why should John go into a long catalog of the women witnesses? I mean, I I get that you don't think there's contradictions in account. Personally, I don't either, but at the same time, inerrancy isn't a hero I'm willing to die on. So if we did look at the account vote and we did find some that we were all agreed on was an error, does that mean we should question everything and think that there isn't any truth in these accounts? Right. If there was, if say, for instance, if you're supposing that there was an error, um, which I'm not, like you said, you're not either, but if there was, mm-hmm. then basically uh, I think it actually aligns with what you see with witnesses that come into mm-hmm. court. And that's one of the one of the things that the federal pattern jury instructions advise jurors when they're handling the testimony of witnesses, they'll say, hey, um, two or three witnesses, they might be describing the same event, but they might not be describing things um, totally exactly the same. And you might have one that disagrees with one, but uh, if you think that the um, witnesses are credible, if you have three or four witnesses that are credible and and you believe that they're talking about the same event and about the same essential events, it's okay for you to uh, rule that they were credible. And just because there might be something that you might think is an error with one witness doesn't mean to discredit that witness or the other witnesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's been said that, you know, you could look at the resurrection counts and maybe there are contradictions, hypothetically, in the minor secondary details, who all went to the tomb, what time of day it was, etc. But they all seem to be united on the major details. It was women who discovered the tomb, the stone was rolled away, the body wasn't in there, Jesus was risen, etc. Yeah, right. John. I think John Wenham makes that point, too, is that uh, you have different uh, witnesses because, say, Mark came from a different center, mm-hmm. Uh, a geographic center where he was talking to witnesses from his location, or Matthew came from another center, so he's talking with different witnesses. It does not mean that uh, just because they have a different witness list, it doesn't mean that they're contradictory witness lists. It just means that they differ some. And really, the differences really aren't that great either. Now, you keep saying witnesses over and over, and I'm sure there are some skeptics that could be dismissing. Yeah, witnesses. How can we be sure these are witnesses? I mean, many scholars place these a generation or more after the events. So how can we be sure these are witnesses? Well, again, we we talk about what the early church fathers um, have told us not very long after um, the closing of, say, the canon in the second century. You have uh, different uh, publications that were put out. Um, that talk about the authorship of the Bible and who they who the people were. You have the early church writings that tell us also who the, the authors were, and not just one, so we have corroboration on the authorship coming from a number of different sources. So I think we can be confident that um, the authors that we have are, in fact, um, the ones that are purported by the Christian Church, they're corroborated by accepted principles of evidence. I mean, we have documents and historical witnesses that are telling us um, who these authors were. Yeah, and uh, 
I, I find it interesting. We talk about the Gospels. Matthew, a tax collector. Mark, I like to refer to him as, to, to bring a point home, he was the mama's boy who split up between Paul and Barnabas and ran back home and later caused a division between these two first great missionaries of the church. And yet his name gets ascribed to Gospel. And they could have just as easily said, Peter, since he was Mark's uh, writer, according to traditions, but nope, they went with Mark instead. And Luke, a Gentile, who is only mentioned in the epistles, and the only name of an author that you would really think would gather a whole lot of credibility in the time, would be John. And ironically, John's the only one who's disputed to some extent in the church fathers. Is it John the Apostle or is it John the Elder? Right, yeah, that is a, a technical question that uh, people bandy about. But I think basically, um, if you look at all of the, the information, I think, you know, the beloved disciple who was on the breast or who uh, leaned against the chest of Jesus Christ, Irenaeus, talks about it, you know, the disciple. Um, he, you know, and then, of course, that's where you have arguments, countervailing arguments, that where they try to discredit Irenaeus, but I don't think uh, discrediting, discrediting him, the information they use, uh, does a great job of impeaching him as a credible witness at all. Yeah. Now, I actually lean more towards uh, Ben Witherington's idea that the Lazarus is a beloved disciple, but either way, we are still dealing with an eyewitness, aren't we? Well, that's what they purport, actually. And if you look through all of the Gospels, what I was uh, thought was striking was the fact that they're always using um, technically juridical language or evidentiary language, like we are witnesses to these things. We testify of what we have seen. We testify of what we have heard. Um, it's not just, you know, puff the magic dragon, live by the sea, and they're talking about uh, some sort of uh, mythical thing. They're talking with uh, precisely technical language that leads me to believe that they were witnesses, testimony, witnessing, etc. And they also don't have language in them such as once upon a time, or it is said that long ago, or a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Right, exactly. Exactly right. Yeah, the, the whole genre of the gospel should be taken into consideration. I mean, I've argue with more than enough skeptics who try and compare the Gospels to, say, Harry Potter or comic books or such. And that's not really a valid way to treat the evidence, is it? Right. So um, the author of Harry Potter, of course, you know, of course, it's a very successful series and she should be rewarded for her, her, uh, her work with it because uh, it's so popular. But she's not... Um, under threat of death, she's not um, publishing these things. So, of course, that's what we have with the uh, New Testament authors. They are all uh, mostly um, under threat of death. Um, and so that's a great point for circumstantially proving um, that the New Testaments are valid, is that their authors knowingly were facing death because uh, of what they believed and what they were spreading. So there's a big difference between, say, um, J.K. Rowland and uh, say the disciple Peter, even though he wasn't the uh, he wasn't one of the authors of uh, say the Gospels, but he was an author of First and Second Peter. 
And he was, you know, as you know, he was crucified. Tradition has it that he was crucified upside down in the 80s, 60s. Yeah. Um, I'd like to let people know a little bit of some that has been We have been in communication some because another aspect in consideration is that the Gospels are Greco-Roman biographies. We have been in communication with Dr. Richard Burridge. The 25th anniversary of his book is going to come out, I believe, this year. And he is interested in coming on the show to talk about that book when it comes out. So if I was interested in that, just watch for the upcoming show whenever it comes out. Don't have a date yet, but watch for it. But, Very interesting. Yeah. Now, let's uh, look at some contradictions. For instance, different accounts have different women going to the tomb. How do we reconcile that? I mean, can't we even can't we offers even just remember who was going there? Right. Well, you know, basically, we do have witness lists, and uh, I'm not turned to it at this exact moment. But I think what you will find um, is that a number of the witnesses are matching very well, and there might be a, a, a difference in a witness that's added or a witness that's subtracted. And so that's not a big divergence. To say that they're contradictory mm-hmm. um, lists, uh, I think, is really stretching things. Because if there is just one or two that are that are different, then how can those be contradictory? Those would be uh, very easily overlapping. They're just different witness lists. Again, uh, John Wenham's point is uh, taken very well that these men were most likely – talking to different witnesses, uh, some uh, mostly the same, but some different. And so that's how they constructed their witness list because of who they actually spoke to. I I think there's a lot to it. I've had a theory ever since reading the first edition of Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, to which we have had Richard Balkum on the show twice about that topic, if anyone's interested, that uh, the women that are named in the accounts are the ones that the disciples spoke to about them, the ones who were alive, who were still eyewitnesses. So when you get to John's, which is usually thought to be the latest, only Mary Magdalene's still around. But yet Mary Magdalene, the account only mentions her, but when she talks about going to Peter and the beloved disciples, she says, we don't know where they've taken him, which means she wasn't alone. Right. Right, exactly. So um, just because, again, because John is um, concentrating on the one primary witness that was involved in what he was doing, uh, that was crucial in his uh, responding to the empty tomb, um, that's why he mentions Mary alone. Mm-hmm. But you're right, that's a very good point. Um, we is the, uh, the pronoun that Mary uses. Another big one for a lot of people is, and we're going to talk more about the nature of the appearances later on, so I'm not interested in getting into whether they were hallucinations or such yet, but the Gospels seem to differ on where the appearances took place. Were they in Galilee? Were they in Jerusalem? Which one do we go with? Well, right, you know, because Luke has written, <laughs> I think Luke in particular is one where they say, you know, it's only in Jerusalem. But however, you have to look at his work as a whole. You have him um, talking about the resurrection in Jerusalem, but then you also you have to look at Acts, and of course that they encountered the risen Jesus Christ, also um, where he ascended, as well Nazareth, Galilee area. So um, you actually have the writings of Luke in both areas, and I don't think 
Um, you within Mark, of course, you just have the. Uh, you don't have the, if you take the except the short ending of Mark, then you have basically an empty tomb with no risen Jesus Christ, even though it's in Jerusalem. But then he's saying, "Hey, you know, he go, you know, he's going ahead before you into Galilee, etc. Um, go there, basically." So you have those two bases covered, and I think basically with Matthew and um, John, you have it, and you have uh, sightings, etc., in both areas. Yeah. So uh, I think that covers it. I think that's basically people don't really look at Acts. You know, as you know, they forget about Acts, the fact that Luke says uh, in his gospel that, uh, you know, Jesus Christ has is seen there, but he's also seen in Galilee as well or on the mountain. Yeah, I I think it's important to note that even Bart Ehrman, I think in his book, Jesus Before the Gospels, says that Mark still has a resurrection narrative, even though... If you go with a short ending, there are no appearances. The resurrection still takes place in Mark. Yes, it does. You're right. Yeah, even with the short ending, it does. And he does say that he's coming, you know, you will see him, you know, he's going to be seen by you again in another area. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, but should, if we were researching the case, should we be skeptical of the tradition if all we had was Mark, for instance, is Mark sufficient to establish a resurrection? I mean, I think it is. I think the tomb, uh, there's no explanation. The uh, the women witnesses were in terror. You had the uh, the young man obviously wasn't just uh, dressed in white, wasn't just a regular guy. It was somebody that the, the women were fearful of. He also had uh, knowledge that he shouldn't have as just a regular guy. I mean, he had prophetic knowledge about where um, Jesus would be in the future. He had uh, obviously knowledge of what had happened before. I think it's um, I think it's uh, very sound to say that we had a resurrection in Mark. Mm-hmm. Where are you on that, Nick? I, I would agree. We do have a resurrection in Mark. That if we return still further, I mean, what something else about these appearances is how many people saw him because they seem to be so different and we've had we've got several people who say well geez mark is first there are no appearances then in math you get some appearances then in luke you get appearances with him eating and speaking and doing more things then in john jesus teleporting into the locked room so don't we see like an evolutionary progression going on well that's a theory that they bring um but i think what you have is something that's a supernatural occurrence You've got something with an empty tomb. You've got um, angels. Um, you have uh, all of these glorious appearances, and and you have different locations where he's visiting different people in three of the of the gospels. Anyways, if you accept the short ending, so you have all of these contacts um, that are physical, that are supernatural, and to say that there is a, a theological progression. Um, I mean, it might be in, in some, when you're talking holistically about the Gospels, you know, that John um, might be more into the, the Logos, the uh, the Greek aspect of things, and bringing out the Word, uh, Jesus is the Word of God. But as far as the resurrection accounts themselves, 
they're all supernatural. They're all uh, glorious appearances, and uh, they're all life-changing for the people that experience them as well. Yeah, but there do seem to be some stark differences. I mean, Paul mentions 500, and that would seem to be a pretty powerful case to some people, but none of the gospel writers seem to think this appearance is worth mentioning. Well, you know, it might be that Paul has uh, later observations as well and has had more experience um, traveling around the diaspora and uh, regions in Jerusalem where he has... Uh, from his later years of investigating things, um, run into all these people. And he says, hey, many of them are still alive today. Mm-hmm. And so. it could be, for all we know, that maybe Paul didn't think these were the best evidences either. I mean, maybe the 500 is just a nicer add-on. He's saying, yeah, there's 500, but I recommend you listen to a testimony of the apostles instead. Well, I mean, yeah, there's any number of things you could uh, attribute to Paul's, uh, but I think Paul's statements, but I think they're, it's talking about, a again, getting back to principles of evidence, that these are heavily corroborated accounts, mm-hmm. um, and that uh, Paul himself did go um, and actually do extensive investigation on this, and he uh, he did interview a bunch of people, including... Peter and James, which he actually mentions in his uh, epistles. Now, when we're listening to the Senate hearings investigating Kavanaugh, one of the things we've heard is, well, Ford doesn't even know when this event took place. Well, apparently the gospel writers don't know when it took place either because they get the time of the day confused, don't they? Well, um, I would like for you to uh, actually expound on that. Uh, well, they, one of them says it was dark. One of them talks about about the day breaking up a time and things like that. Yeah, well, I think that's basically, now you're talking about probably from just personal experience when um, the it's turning from dark to mm-hmm. light, you're talking only about several minutes. You're, you might be talking 15, 20 minutes. So I think of all of the points that come forth, like I think Carrier actually uh, addresses that at some point. I think that's one of his weakest mm-hmm. points because it's so insignificant, mm-hmm. the point that he's trying to make, because um, I think we all from our natural experiences encounter the sun, the sunrise, and you know that it, there's only a span of 10 or 15 minutes where it goes from dark to light. Mm-hmm. So. Now, when you get to a point where you're starting to evaluate these claims, you do say, well, here are what some Christian scholars say. Now, I can picture there are some skeptics who could be just think, ah, yes, Christian scholars. Mm-hmm. Go with the people who are biased and who will say anything to make their case because they have to have a resurrection. Right. Well, So what, what I would do is I would point them to um, the, the proper way to impeach witnesses in the law enforcement uh, criminal justice community, um, going to the Federal Rules of Evidence, Federal Rule of Evidence 610, which states that you cannot um, impeach a witness based on his religious perspective. It's just improper to do. What you have to do is you have to bring positive evidence that this witness is either lying or has lied in the past, is a cheat, is a thief, or is stands to gain financially, say, in some way. And uh, so that is the proper way to impeach a witness. But you cannot, in the Federal Rules of Evidence, you cannot say just because somebody is a Christian, you can impeach them on those grounds. 
because that's improper. I mean, think about it. it just it just makes sense because isn't that basically bigotry? Mm-hmm. Like you you could say that of uh, of Roman historians. Oh, they're all Roman, and they're so basically we can't trust their histories because they're biased. Um, it just doesn't make sense. It's it's bigotry, and I think the federal rules of evidence have it right with uh, rule six ten. And but if we follow that argument consistently, we could never argue anything in a court of law because any lawyer coming forward could be said to have a bias because, I mean, they want to get paid for the work they're doing. And, you know, so many lawyers say, hey, if we don't win the case, you don't get it, you don't spend a dime and such. Or they want to protect their reputation and keep looking good. They want that honor and such. Or some combination or maybe something else entirely. Right, exactly. I mean, I think everybody has some sort of implicit bias, but the the, the question is, um, is somebody being dishonest when they justify? Yeah. And that's where I think there is no really impeachable evidence against the disciples or the, the authors, the gospel authors, because we don't uh, know them as liars, cheats, or thieves. We don't have any writings. We don't have any other historical witnesses in their writings talking about, you know, the uh, the total and complete dishonesty in particularity. You know, they don't bring forth, nobody brings forth evidence against the gospel authors. And that, that's something important to bring forward, you know, because we could say hypothetically that these people might have had things to gain, such as, say, eternal life and such in the future, but the present time, they had persecution and such to gain, and we don't see anything about them gaining the things that uh, J. Warner Wallace would say motivate any sort of crime or lie, power, sex, or money. Right, exactly. And of course, uh, you know, again, pointing to the rules of evidence to 607 and Federal Rule of Evidence 607 and 608, you need, I think you should impeach a witness properly. Do you have any information that they're dishonest? Do you have any information that they're a cheat? And if you don't, then um, why? how are you going to impeach a witness? Mm-hmm. And some that we see uh, going on in these Kavanaugh hearings, and again, I'm not asking you to give a verdict or and such, but one of the things that defenders of Kavanaugh keep saying is, yes, uh, Kavanaugh has been alleged to do things. No one is disputing that. But the accusation isn't enough. In the same sense, we could accuse the gospel writers of many, many things, but the accusation itself isn't enough, right? Right. You would need uh, some sort of actual particularized information coming from a historical witness, I think, and and we just don't have that to discredit the gospel authors. Mm. And of course, some people could say that, well, no one would have cared to lie about and such. Christianity was a small sect and such, but it doesn't help us to point to evidence we don't have for whatever reason. Right, exactly. Well, and of course, uh, yeah, exactly right. There's there's no uh, information coming from antiquity. Um, I mean, you do have some information coming from antiquity, of course, from, um, you know, Justin the martyr, you know, that, that it was believed that the Romans thought the Christians were were cannibals because of the love feast, mm-hmm. etc., and that they were idolaters, etc. 
So these are the type of claims. We do have claims coming forth from antiquity, but we don't, such as these, but we don't have um, claims coming that they were cheats and thieves and liars. In fact, we might say we, in some cases, we even have the exact opposite. If we look at what Pliny the Younger said about what the Christians did and they met regularly, we see the opposite of cheats and liars. <laughs> right, and exactly, uh, yeah, good point, Nick. And, and also the fact you look at Peter, you know, one of the, uh, the head uh, characters of the church, and he's constantly um, being shown to be flawed and being uh, someone who's very weak at points. Mm -hmm. But this was a sanitized uh, version of the, uh, the accounts of those days. Mm -hmm. They surely made him look like he was some sort of hero of some sort. I mean, in the sense that he never committed a wrong and that he was just totally above reproach. But that's why I, I love the Gospels as well, because... I can associate with Peter mm -hmm. because I'm flawed just as much as he mm -hmm. is. So it rings true. Now, something that uh, Carrier has said, I believe, about the criterion of embarrassment is that it really is too subjective. And such because, hey, what's embarrassing for one culture and one group might not be embarrassing to another. So maybe when we talk about the disciples aren't presenting the best life, that might not work so well because... You know, maybe it just wouldn't have been as bad to them. Well, I mean, I, it's not necessarily the, the, uh, exactly the criteria of embarrassment that I'm thinking of in the sense. I'm just thinking that they're not trying to glorify mm. him. You know, they're not trying to put him forth like, say, is uh, this totally and completely pure being that is above reproach. They're just calling it as it mm. is. Now, I'd like to also ask about something else here. I mean, I'm going to tell people about your book at the end, and I do encourage them to buy it, but you also are talking a lot about the rules of evidence. If people just want to see the rules of evidence, is there a place online where they can go and find these? Principles of evidence, yeah. There's, uh, I uh, cited a lot in my bibliography. I'm trying to go to turn to it now, but it's, uh, gosh. It's, uh, it's one of the, uh, the sites where you just go and you get the federal, the federal rules of evidence. But uh, for the federal pattern jury instructions, you just need to look up, say, the Sixth Circuit Court federal pattern jury instructions. And they will differ from um, circuit court to circuit court. But uh, you can find those online just by doing a federal circuit court, Sixth Circuit um, federal pattern jury instructions. And I'm trying to uh, turn to the uh, the other resource that I don't have memorized, Cornell University Law School Legal Information Institute. That's where you can find all the various uh, federal rules of evidence that I cite in my book, the Cornell University Law School Legal Information Institute. Mm -hmm. Now let's move on to the next part of your book here. Uh, about maybe... 15 or so years ago, probably a little bit later, maybe 12 or 13, I'm back, because I remember it, I was living with a roommate in Charlotte at the time when it was becoming very popular. There was this film that came out on the internet called Zeitgeist. I'm guessing you know about it, right? Yeah, I, I've heard about it. Yeah, definitely. and it was largely conspiracy theory things. I mean, the second part was trying to argue that uh, the World Trade Center bombing was an inside job and such. But the first part was about religion. <laughs> and you know, 
We think Jesus is so incredible, but geez, all these other figures, they had, uh, they were born on December 25th. They were born of a virgin. They had 12 disciples. They did miracles. They were said to be titles like the Good Shepherd, the Bread of Life, etc. They were baptized at the age of 30. They were crucified. They were said to have risen again. Such all these countless figures. And yet, here we only look at Jesus. And, you know, if you're you're not informed on a matter, that does look like a pretty convincing case, doesn't it? Right, yeah. So I think that's what a lot of these Internet bloggers anticipate, that you're not actually going to go to a library and sit down and read books, which is exactly what I did. Um, So, yeah, you have uh, these people just putting out all of these claims about uh, these pagan gods that are allegedly lined up to, uh, you know, the New Testament, Jesus Mm -hmm. Christ. But if you do any sort of studying, I know Mithras was a very popular one years ago, and I don't think any scholar really seriously considers that Mithras, the the Roman god, um, is actually some sort of prototype of Jesus Christ because um, I think scholarly research pretty much uh, buried that one. I don't think Richard Carrier asserts that either. I think basically what we found out was that it actually came after um, Christianity and a lot of our knowledge that we have from early church scholars writing about Mithras. So, I mean, I think uh, that's an example of what you just referenced, Nick, that people will just put all sorts of stuff on the Internet, and then um, they anticipate that people won't follow up and actually read and do research. But, yeah, Mithras is a perfect example. That's basically, uh, that's been discredited years ago. Yeah, and... Even if some scholars give some credibility to some things, it's usually in minor secondary details. And those ones that come up later, such as some scholars might think Jesus being born on December 25th was influenced by Mithras, but that's something that's nowhere said in Scripture. Right, I don't think anybody really knows exactly what date Jesus Christ was born on. Mm-hmm. So, uh, before we start looking at the specific examples, and you said go to a library and read books. Where if people want to go and read books at the library on these figures, what are some guidelines they should follow? Well, basically, I think you need to make sure that the uh, the person that's doing the writing is a scholar that's noted in his mm-hmm. field, uh, doing uh, work historical, uh, mythological uh, work on these uh, different characters. So, in essence, if somebody uh, is a well-known scholar and is published from a well-known publishing house and uh, he's a, a uh, accomplished in his field, then I think that's somebody that you should read and, and kind of, that's sort of what I did uh, with this uh, chapter three, you know, with the, uh, that the resurrection of Jesus was influenced by pagan myths. I, I went in and, and, and dug into the, the scholarship that was secular scholarship about, uh, what they said about the different gods that uh, Carrier um, provided in his work. And that's where I, I did a lot of my work, was just sitting in the library, reading the research of these scholars. And, of course, not only the scholars, but one of the other great sources to go to is any primary sources you can close to the time, such as the ancient histories, or, for instance, if we were talking about Horus and Osiris, you might want to read things like, say, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, for instance. 
Well, right. Of course, I can't read that because I'm not well versed in Egyptian right. uh, or cuneiform or, or whatever the uh, the hieroglyphics or whatever whatever um, the the uh, god we're talking about in these ancient languages. So I have to rely upon what scholars say. Uh, these um, these works say, like in other words, the ancient Egyptian walls were covered with uh, references to Osiris. I don't, you know, I cannot. Uh, I don't know how to, to read hieroglyphics to rely on a scholar to give me that. Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone at this point, <clears throat> you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. My guest is Dr. Ross Sickening. We're talking about his book on the resurrection, looking at the work of Richard Carrier. <laughs> but if you're here next week, next week is going to be the first Saturday in October. And I really wanted to dedicate this October to the Reformation. So you are going to have a lot of shows on Reformation. We've got three of them planned out already, working on the fourth. But one next week, we're going to have Dr. Jim Payton on, writing a book such as Light from the Christian East, an Introduction to the Orthodox Tradition. He's not Orthodox, but he's done a lot of research on the position and such. And he's going to be in dialogue with, with, uh, with Barnabas Powell here, at the, uh, the local Orthodox Church that my wife and I visit from time to time, they're going to be talking about Protestant and Orthodox relationships here. We're going to learn something about Eastern Orthodoxy. We're going to learn something about Protestantism. And we might understand what the other side thinks better. We might understand our own side a little bit better. I mean, I would say in this research, I've come to see different things about the Catholic and Orthodox traditions myself. But... I've actually come now to appreciate even more my own Protestant tradition and why I hold it. So if you're wondering why your position you are and what these other sides think, I hope you'll be here next month and that you'll be here next week. For now, let's get back to Dr. Hickling talking about his work on Richard Carrier. <laughs> well, let's start with one that you mentioned, Horus and Osiris. And usually the story is pretty much the same, that Horus was indeed born of a virgin, that he was the good shepherd. He was born on December 25th. He had 12 disciples. Sometimes they say he was he was baptized by someone, and that he told a story that the parallels the rich man, Lazarus, he died, he rose again. And it's often tied in with Osiris as well. Usually these two are combined. In some sense, so uh, so okay. let's uh, talk about one of these figures here, the Horus figure, who's often combined with Osiris, as it were, yes. and he's usually thought to be um, born on December twenty fifth, born of a virgin, did miracles, had twelve disciples, <laughs> was given tales like for good shepherd and such. I think some people say he was baptized at the age of thirty. And uh, he supposedly told a, he raised Lazarus from the dead or told a parable about a Lazarus figure and such, <laughs> that he was crucified and that he rose again. Such. Now, what's the lowdown on this figure? What really happened with him? Well, right. <laughs> um, so with Osiris, I basically focused on Osiris, but as you alluded to, a lot of times they're combined. You know, the... The living Horus is the, you know, the uh, netherworld Osiris, so they are combined a lot. So I basically focused on Osiris himself. 
and what I realized quickly. Um, but first, before I go into um, the contrasts and comparisons between Osiris and Jesus Christ, I would like to say that uh, in researching this topic, what I realized is that uh, there is a, a, a logical fallacy that is being relied upon when you even make um, these sorts of comparisons without particularized information, because it is actually the post hoc ergo propter hoc yeah. fallacy. Um, just because something precedes something in history doesn't mean that it's causally connected. And that's the, the major point that Carrier's trying to make without particularized evidence is that because something preceded something else, then um, the other, the thing that happened afterward, the occurrence that happened af afterward necessarily follows from the preceding um, incident. And so that's what we have here. We have a post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy being employed because um, that's basically his main point that he's trying to make, that there, there are similarities and that one came before the other. But really the important point is, is to provide a historical witness or witnesses, good high quality evidence that there was a pass down, that there was a um, pass off between a pagan cult and the Christian cult. And if you had this in writings, if you had historical witnesses telling us of the same, then he would actually have evidence, particularized, relevant evidence to um, undergird what he's trying to say. But he doesn't have any of this. He just says, oh, because these dying and rising gods preceded Jesus Christ, therefore the resurrection comes from these dying and rising gods. I'm sorry, that just doesn't cut the mustard. Mm -hmm. um, evidentially. And so I wanted to say that first. That's the first glaring problem that Richard Carrier has with this, with his thesis in this regard. And now we can go and talk to a talk in reference to um, these characters, uh, if you wanted to. Because Jews and Christians both were very cautious about outside influences and such on even the most minute of details as well. Yeah, exactly right. So you make a good point, Nick. We actually have positive evidence to the contrary. We have uh, provident, uh, positive evidence that um, every time in Jewish history that um, there was some sort of intermingling, it was expressly forbidden in any number of uh, situations, and I catalog that too. I also... Um, actually go into the New Testament and talk about the, the prohibition of mixing at all with any sort of idols, you know, coming from uh, Paul's work. So if you have in the uh, Old Testament a total uh, exclusivity with um, God and no other gods, and if you have the same in the New Testament with Jesus Christ or the, you know, God, then how can somebody without any really good evidence make this claim but we have evidence to the contrary that there was no mixing. So um, I think that's an important point that you made, and, Nick. And going back to the post hoc fallacy and such, I mean, we know Mike Lacona has talked about this story of this big ship that's said to be unsinkable sailing the Atlantic in the month of April. All of a sudden, it hits an iceberg, it starts to sink, and there aren't enough lifeboats for everyone. And we say... Oh, oh, you're talking about the Titanic. No, I'm talking about the Titan in the book Futurity, because it's the same scenario, and that took place before the Titanic sank. Right. 
Right, good, good. Good example. So let's talk some about Horus Osiris. I mean, who was he really? Okay, yeah, basically um, Osiris was an ancient Egyptian god, and uh, he was born with uh, his sister Isis. They were together in the womb. And this is where mythology, it, it quickly, you, sh- you know the differences between the, res- the uh, accounts of Jesus Christ in the New Test- Testament and then the ancient Osirian accounts, because Isis and um, Osiris actually had sex in the womb, and uh, so that's how they came together. And then uh, he became you know, the, the ruler of Egypt, and basically what happened is he accidentally— had uh, it was I guess it was dark and he accidentally had sex with um, Seth, his brother, his wife, and then at that point, um, that's when everything uh, goes sour for Osiris as king. There's a feast that Seth holds for him, and so he's already conspired with seventy-two people that are his co-conspirators. They're going to have a a casket that's at this party and then um what seth is going to do is he's going to have a contest to see who fits the casket so uh, along the way osiris is says hey i'll jump in here and, and test this casket and then when that happens um the co-conspirators come together they nail the coffin shut with osiris's body in it and they float it down uh the river the nile and then um He's basically he's dead at this point because he's he's drowned in the Nile, and then supernaturally Isis comes around and finds the body, but then um, he's going around um, trying to help him. Then uh, I guess Seth's minions uh, seize the body of Osiris and cut it to pieces, and so uh, with help of the gods, Isis uh, somehow brings the body back together, and then uh, magically. Uh, copulates with uh, Osiris and Horus is born. And then at, at, uh, after this, what happens is there's things happening, and it's very complex. Things are happening in the netherworld. They're making their case for Osiris. He shouldn't be dead. He should be allowed to uh, come to the netherworld. And so the, uh, the uh, people, in the, the gods in the netherworld have a vote and say, okay, we, we're going um, we're gonna to judge on behalf of Osiris, and you're going to come to the netherworld, and uh, this is where you're going to be the king of the netherworld. So that's basically the story of Osiris uh, in a nutshell. So basically what we have is somebody who was drowned um, and somebody who was magically, he wasn't even reinstated in life, but he was transferred to the netherworld as king of the netherworld. And then in in, uh, that world, Basically, he's he along with Ray or Ra, the sun god. Then he sort of enlivens uh, those who are able to uh, get to the the netherworld with their their mummies upon death. So it takes a long time. So I'm going to pause here and have some more discussion. What, what do you want to um, discuss in reference to this, Nick? Well, it's obvious. That's just exactly like the Christian story, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> it there's nothing. There's not really a whole lot of similarities at all. Um, and one of the, the, the things that I wanted to point out, I spent a lot of ink on this in my chapter um, on the dying and rising gods, is that with the Osirian uh, formulation, 
as far as soteriology is concerned or how you gain acceptance before Osiris and have a relationship with him? Well, there really is no such thing with Osiris. There is no way that you gain salvation well, with uh, Osiris doing something for you and then um, you know, having a, a praying relationship. It's basically a funerary cult, and uh, the only way that you get to the netherworld successfully is that you have to do just one more act, um, good act, and you have bad acts. And not only that, you have to have the right um, magic scripts in your mummy container, in your coffin. That's how you gain acceptance before Osiris. There's nobody that's baptized into uh, the religion of Osiris as carrier states. If you read the literature, basically it's merely a funerary cult uh, where um, it's just based upon your deeds. And in total juxtaposition, you have Jesus Christ who actually paves the way. We have a relationship. We have him dying for our sins, and we are cleansed by him. It, there's no such thing in the Osirian cult. Yeah, in uh, preparation for this Reformation, I have been doing some reading on Mary, and something that was striking me about this is how tame the accounts are. I mean, when you read Luke's account of, say, the virgin birth, which I do affirm, that uh, you have... Uh, saying, well, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. It's not as if you, are, you are, have the account say, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and then we have a Kama Sutra being described and such, which is pretty much what I think we see in these pagan religions, isn't it? Well, right. I think with the Romulan legend, you have uh, the Vestal Virgin. Mm -hmm. uh, Mars, in one account, comes and copulates with her, and another account, a magic phallus appears, mm -hmm. and and it's actual, uh, you know, physical sex act that in, that's involved. So, yes, it's absolutely right what you're saying. Or either that or gods are cosmically having sex up in the, uh, you know, up in the stratosphere somewhere. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And something else about Horus Osiris accounts is that these aren't ever really, I think, meant to be seen as historical accounts. They don't take place at one specific time, such as so-and-so B.C., and such, and they are usually more built around the cycle of the Nile, right? Yeah, exactly right. I don't think anybody really um, holds that Osiris was an actual person. I think it's obvious the way it's presented that it that it is a myth, which stands in total contradistinction to uh, what the uh, the New Testament portrays about Jesus Christ. Well, you talked about Romulus, so let's look at him because there could be some speculation that maybe he really is a historical figure. I mean, Plutarch even has a life of Romulus and such. So, right. so what's what's the story of Romulus, Finn? I mean, he could be a historical yeah, figure. He, I mean, yeah, he's legend, and he goes way back, uh, you know, to the very days before, you know, the founding of Rome. I think 7-800 B.C. Is, is what I'm, I'm hearing, or maybe even further back from what I read. And so basically what you have is, is somebody who is allegedly, along with his brother Remus, are the founders of Rome. Um, and basically uh, they have a legendary beginning where they're um, actually raised, suckled by a wolf. And then uh, there is somebody who uh, is the wife of a hunter who takes uh, them in and actually um, helps raise them. And there are other supernatural things about their accounts that, that occur. 
But basically, at some point, uh, they get old enough to um, become uh, who they are. And so they start, in their adult era, they start founding the, uh, the city of Rome. And at some point, it's apparent that uh, there's all sorts of different uh, versions of this, by the way. One of the versions is that uh, Romulus starts uh, uh, or actually building his wall, the, uh, the outside fortifications of Rome. And then uh, Remus, mocking him, jumps over the uh, the uh, water construction. And then one of Romulus's men actually hits him with a shovel and kills him. But there's other uh, things, other versions of that as well that happen. And some have Romus as, excuse me, uh, Remus is continuing on. But uh, so you have three or four variant accounts that are like totally and completely different. But basically what happens uh, with Romulus is that he uh, ends up becoming the uh, the sole or the the mighty general there. And then he um, ends up becoming a very successful uh, general with all of his uh, military might and power that he eventually uh, gets from building Rome into a powerful city. And then, of course, you, you have the uh, the rape of the Sabines. Um, basically that he formulates because his soldiers need men, I mean women, to uh, be wives and, and so they can have families and, and to continue the propagation of the Roman Empire. So he lures these women from the, his neighbors, the Sabaeans, into a, a festival. And then all of his soldiers swoop and carry off uh, these women, according to uh, Roman legend. So basically what you have is... Um, a man or a legendary figure who uh, has these uh, supernatural roots with being suckled by a wolf. And, and then also uh, him and Romulus and Remus, they have, when they're trying to, who's going to be in, in charge of what area and who's going to be the, uh, the dominant one, they have these birds, they have these different unusual tests that they use. And then you have Romulus, um, consolidating power. He's a he's a general who's uh, savage and uh, ruthless in how he conquests other lands. And of course, already we're seeing the contrast with Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but we also have uh, accounts, don't we, that Romulus was seen alive again after his death. Right. Yeah, I didn't want to talk too much at <laughs> one time, so I'm happy that you interject. But, uh, yes, basically um, what you have is uh, he, con he consolidates power, and you have different stories of how he, he died. One story is that it was a powerful storm, and then it, a cloud came, and he was no longer. And, another, and one of the most popular ones was that he was actually brought into the Roman Senate chambers, and he was murdered. And uh, the portions, chopped up portions of his body were transported out of the uh, the Roman chambers, and uh, he disappeared that way. But yeah, you have a uh, Julius Proculus, who um, one person who stated that he saw an epiphany of Romulus uh, as he was walking after his disappearance. And basically he says, uh, I'm now the god Quirinius, and that, uh, you know, Rome shall be a great uh, republic, keep on conquering, uh, basically is what he said. And so that's basically the Romulan epiphany 
that uh, we have coming from this legend. And it's important that the epiphany doesn't equal resurrection. Right, exactly. And uh, so when we're applying these accepted principles of evidence, what we don't have is we don't have corroboration. Um, we, we don't have a chain of custody because we really don't know um, whether these events are even true or not. Um, we don't have uh, basically um, circumstantial evidence here. You just have one witness that uh, witnesses an epiphany. He doesn't even know whether it's a body or not. So I think we can see uh, a number of contrasts between Jesus Christ and Romulus, who was a savage, uh, a ruthless general who, uh, by violence, uh, made conquest all over the area of where he was, according to the legend. In total contradistinction, you have with Jesus Christ, uh, somebody who lived totally and completely for others and, and, and was not engaged at all. Uh, he was totally selfless. He didn't have the trappings of power. He didn't have any place to, to lay his head. He didn't have riches. A matter of fact, he eschewed witness, uh, riches totally. And uh, in his resurrection, you have somebody who uh, was, was knowingly uh, giving up his life on behalf of others, where in contrast you have um, Romulus, his life was taken from him because they thought he was getting uh, too powerful, the Roman Senate did. And then, of course, you have the bodily resurrection with all of the uh, corroborated witnesses, uh, which is rich in evidentiary character, as opposed to Romulus, who um, we just have one alleged witness who saw an epiphany. I'd like to remind everyone of this point, Fada. You're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do here is supported by listeners like you. So I urge you to please go to uh, our website at uh, deeperwatersapologetics.com. There's a link on the side to help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And if you click that link, you get taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place. Nothing's wrong with your computer. Nothing's wrong with my website. Mike and Debbie Lacona are my in-laws. And you make your donation. And then you get in touch with me or my wife, Allie, or Mike or Debbie and say, Hey, I made my donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. They will get that donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also... uh, Buy books that I, e-books that I have written, such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, <laughs> or co-written, God and Natural Disasters, Defining Inerrancy, and even The Mention of Ours Project. That's a re- rather fun one that I took part in. And uh, also, uh, tell me, uh, Dr. Rickman, your wife, does, does she like jewelry? Does my wife like yep. jewelry? Yeah, she can't wear as much because of certain limitations, but yeah, she's always enjoyed jewelry. Do you have a uh, an inside track on that? Actually, Nick? I do. I'm glad, but she mentioned it. My wife has the same thing. She's got an allergy to nickel, so she can't wear that much. But we have a jewelry store. Our friend Lena Clester does it with Premier Jewelers, and whatever you purchase there, 25% of it goes to Deeper Waters. You just get in touch with me and let me know. So if you buy a piece of jewelry for, say, 100 bucks, we get 25 
And like I say, guys, you can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up for that screw-up that you recently did with her. Or you can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up for that screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. And if you can't do any of these things, just do simple things. Share the podcast on your Facebook feed, talk about it, and go on iTunes and leave a positive review. i really love to see them. Uh, Dr. Rickling, do you have an organization you'd like people to donate to? Well, um, I'm a member of two organizations. One is a small ministry that I run. It's called Shield Your Faith. And a shield is an allusion to a badge, um, which is also called a shield. So it's an allusion to evidentiary principles, um, actually, that um, support the, uh, the risen Jesus Christ. So, yeah, basically that's what I do. I use principles of evidence to uh, show the reasonableness of Christianity. And you can go there to shieldyourfaith.org, and I have my blog where I write uh, uh, different blog posts on contemporary issues that I think are of interest to people. And I also, um, if you want to reach me, you can reach me at ross at shieldyourfaith.org. And also, Rosho Christie, if you go to the roshochristie.org site, I think it's a great ministry um, that is spreading across the country. I'm, I'm involved in that in the Greensboro area, so I would encourage everybody to visit those sites, Nick. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to go really quickly through the last two figures that you cover. One of them is another one who could also be a historical figure, and that's Zalmoxis. In his case, it's quite different. Apparently, he was a rich person in, I believe, the area of Thrace, and he disappeared for a few years, and then he was seen again. Right. Well, basically, um, this is another legend. We're not sure if that if he ever existed. And again, we don't have a good um, chain of custody as far as the the historical witnesses with Zalmoxis. We've got Herodotus, um, the famous historian, who uh, re- goes back and says he's heard some things from from some other people about this man by the name of Zalmoxis, and he could have been the servant of Pythagoras. And that uh, he was somebody, like you said, who kind of went from humble beginnings to being a prominent person among the uh, Thracians. And basically, he would hold meals and and, uh, he would talk about um, how to gain uh, favor uh, in, in front of God. And basically, that was by being a warrior or being a prominent citizen of good character. And so, yeah, like you said... Nick, um, I think where this, uh, the alleged or supposed similarities comes in is that he disappeared, um, allegedly, according to this legend that we've heard from Herodotus. And basically, he didn't, like, die and arise from the dead uh, after three days. Basically, what we have with Zalmoxis is that Herodotus tells us that he actually deceived the Thracians and that he lived out of view of the Thracian citizens for a period of three years. And then uh, he comes back, uh, he, I guess he was uh, secreted in an underground chamber. And then after three years, he comes back emaciated looking. And apparently relatives and, and some certain friends had uh, contact with Zalmoxis. 
you know, to to give him status reports of what's going on in the world and maybe to, to bring him some food, et cetera. And then he comes back and says, you know, I've been to the, the netherworld and I've seen these things and I am this, you know, conduit, this supernatural character. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we can already see uh, some pretty prominent differences Um you know, of course, we talked about post hoc ergo propter hoc. That's the foundation of why we shouldn't receive these theories from Carrier. But now we see um, with every one of his candidates, and he's got a number of them. I, I just look at four of them, but he's got a number of different candidates that he, he looks at. Uh, and uh, so Zamoxis is one of the ones he mentions a lot. But you already see, um, in spite of this logical fallacy that he relies upon, that he doesn't really have a lot of, there's not really a lot of similarities between Zalmoxis and Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And let's briefly go over Inanna. Like, uh, in addition, uh, part of the Zalmoxian cult was to every five years send somebody after um, he died and became a god was to send uh, someone to Zalmoxis to communicate to him. So every five years, they would have somebody that they, they would, in essence, sacrifice. So you had uh, actual human sacrifice. They'd have a bunch of arrows um, arrayed, and then they would toss the uh, whoever was the lucky messenger to visit Zalmoxis. Then they would toss him into this uh, area of arrows. And if he survived, then he was okay. But if he died, then he went to Zalmoxis um, as, uh, as a uh, conduit. So then you have that aspect of it, and uh, you also have the fact that um, this Zalmoxin cult was a sort of a subterranean sort of cult where the the holy man uh, would actually dwell in caves and grottos, and and then he would communicate uh, with the the uh, whoever the the king or the ruler was of that area. So you have this sort of uh, cult of the subterranean cult with this person who has these special powers from Zalmoxis. But what you don't have is you don't have really, other than being a prominent citizen, a good upstanding citizen and a, and a good warrior, you don't have any way to actually sort of, you know, in reference to Christianity, you, you of course, you have the, uh, the passion of Jesus Christ and you have him um, dying for our sins. Other than what I just described, there's no other way to have any sort of acceptance with Zalmoxis. So I think you can see um, you have all of these contrasts with Zalmoxis as opposed to comparisons with uh, Jesus Christ. I mean, he used deception. Um, it was all about pretty much inviting the prominent uh, citizens, the men of Thrace, to uh, these uh, fellowship meals and what you don't have is you don't have somebody who is, again, like Jesus Christ, who sacrifice, sacrifices all and gives up everything. You have somebody who uh, is deceiving. You have somebody who's interested more in politics. Um, and you can see the total contrast between Zalmoxis and Jesus Christ. Yeah, we're uh, leave Inanna then for the for the books due to time restraints and such. Let's move to the last part. That is where we talk about the nature of the appearances. Because if you do any sort of dialogue with people on the internet or anywhere else and they agree that 
as most scholars agree, the disciples were sure they had seen the risen Jesus again, that they had some sort of appearances. But very next thing you hear is hallucinations. Now, Carrier does go right. a bit into detail about what could have caused these hallucinations, such as some state of condition where you're going in and out of sleep. And I know in his uh, book on the historicity of Jesus, he suggested something like schizophrenia and such. So uh, why aren't, aren't these kinds of halluc- these kinds of theories valid theories? Right. Uh, thanks, Nick. So what I did again is I went to the library, did a bunch of research, and actually um, uh, pulled the research of his of uh, psychologists and those who are experts in hallucinations, and I just went through all of the different hallucinations and actually studied what they were, um, especially the ones that Carrier offered. He offered that uh, the disciples had hypnagogic or hypnopompic hallucinations, basically hallucinations where you're going in and out of sleep. Uh, Say you're going uh, into sleep, you might uh, see some strange abstract objects um, or odd faces that you're not familiar with. And again, with hypnopompic coming out of sleep, you might see some really bizarre and things, uh, bizarre scenes and things that scare you um, and so these are the sorts of hallucinations that he said could have been. Well, let, I mean, let me you... step in for a little bit here, right quick, then, because yeah. I mean, we, we've heard of these kinds of things happening. There are cases of people in the Navy SEALs. I think it's going through Hell Week, as it were. They are denied sleep for a time, and they do start hallucinating. And hey, you know, the disciples. They'd just seen Jesus die. They'd had a pre-sleepless night, the night of the crucifixion, because, you know, they're going to pray, and he can't, they can't even stay awake for an hour and such, and maybe they were on the run, maybe they were scared, maybe they just couldn't sleep. And so maybe maybe Carrier does have a case, and maybe the disciples were just sleepless. Well, right, that's, that's actually different than hypnagogy and hypnopompic. That would be a sleep-deprived hallucination. That's another okay. category. Of hallucination, and with that one, uh, with these seals and with the other sorts of deprivation hallucinations, what you see is that they realize that once they get the right amount of sleep or once they recover, they automatically realize that what they had were hallucinations. Um, Getting back to the going in and going out of sleep hallucinations, they're very brief, very um, abstract. Um, It's not as if you had a whole scene that had any meaning to it um, with hypnagogic and hypnopompic hallucinations. So that couldn't be it. If you look really closely into the the psychological hallucination literature, you realize it has nothing at all to uh, any similarity with the resurrection account uh, appearances. And so you did also mention schizophrenia hallucinations, well, we could take a long time with that one, and we don't have a whole lot of time. But what I would say is that the schizophrenic hallucinations, these are the only type of hallucinations that people actually think are real. And however, if you look at the types of hallucinations uh, that are under schizophrenia, you realize that the most prominent one is an auditory hallucination. And uh, so having a visual and an auditory hallucination match up for a schizophrenia uh, patient is something that normally doesn't happen. You might have um, a separate auditory hallucination, but then you would also have a, um, a totally and completely different um, visual hallucination. So what you find out once you do a scholastic study of schizophrenia, 
type hallucinations, you realize that it could not be a schizophrenic hallucination. Um, yeah, go ahead, Nick. Yeah, I, I wasn't going to say anything, but I am saying everything. My wife actually does sometimes have these uh, schizophrenic hallucinations, so I do know what you're talking about there. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for mentioning that. Um, there's other uh, hallucinations that he talks about, um, bereavement hallucinations, mm-hmm. basically um, people that who lose their loved ones. Um, they, they might have an encounter with uh, some sort of brief uh, reminiscence or something that reminds them of their loved one. But, I mean, I go into great detail in the book on all these different sorts of hallucinations. You know, I, I sort of catalog what the actual scholars are saying about these hallucinations. But just real quickly to say that a bereavement hallucination would could not be what the disciples um, experienced because these bereavement hallucinations, actually are very short. They're very uh, tiny uh, reminiscences. They're not something where you you thought your Uncle John is alive and is still alive today, you know? Um, Basically, people know that it's not real what they see. And again, the schizophrenic hallucination is the only one people think are real. And so that gets to the point, could 12 schizophrenic patients start a worldwide religion have enough organization and ability to start one well i've had uh schizophrenic patients in my family and i know that they need to be cared for and uh, there's no way that uh, 12 schizophrenic patients um, could um, start a worldwide faith like the christian faith yeah and is there any reason even aside from these experiences to think these people were her were a schizophrenic yeah, right, exactly. I mean, I think we have um, a lot of of the writings of the New Testament, even, you know, of course, the authors, we know that there a number of them are learned men, some of them are fishermen. There's no evidence, like you say, that actually points to the fact that any of them were schizophrenics. And here's something else that's that we know from literature, that a hallucination is a personal experience. So if 12 people were hallucinating at the same time, that would in and of itself be fantastic. Um, but what we also know was that each of these hallucinators would be having their own personal hallucination. Uh, you know, we could also talk about Paul some here, because you'll find any number of things about him. Maybe he had epilepsy, or my personal favorite, he had a guilty conscience. Right, and I'm glad you um, bring that up, because in my research on hallucinations, I know that some people have had guilt as a result of, say, a hallucination, maybe of someone dying or some other terrible thing happening. But what I found, and I was looking for it in particular because I heard, you know, I I saw where uh, Carrie was writing that perhaps it was guilt, where someone could could have a hallucination. But nowhere in the literature, nowhere in the uh, scholastic literature did I see where actually guilt was a cause of a hallucination. So, I mean, I think that you, uh, the fact that you bring that up is, is good because I don't think that's anywhere in the scholastic literature about guilt. Well, could Paul have been epileptic? Right. Um, of course, with that, I have a whole section on that, and we could spend a whole lot of time on that as well because I do um, poll what the, the scholars say in epileptic seizures. But um, I think basically when you go into that, what you would realize that what Paul had could not have been 
an epileptic seizure because, again, at some point people do know that uh, with an epileptic seizure that it's, it's, it's uh, what they might have as a hallucination is not real. And I do know someone who has epilepsy, and uh, they know that any time they have some sort of, of experience, they know it's not real. It's, it's part of their seizure. And so what you have with Paul, though, is you have actual people. For, you know, again, we're talking about evidence. Um, you have people that heard the, the voice or saw the light. You have uh, people that actually led Paul to Damascus because he couldn't because he was temporarily blinded. You have uh, the description of scales falling from his eyes. So you have uh, indications that this was an actual. Um, event that occurred because you have evidence of other people being present when it happened. Plus, you have physical manifestations, scales upon his eyes. You have blindness. Um, so, yeah, as far as um, it is concerned, I don't think that a, uh, an epileptic seizure could have, or a hallucination from a seizure could have been the, uh, the cause of it. And again, I go into uh, great detail on each one of these topics. So I'd encourage you, if you are interested, to see what the uh, the scholars are saying each form of these hallucinations i would encourage you to get this book and, and give it a read yeah and like i said we're going to be telling people at the end of the show how they can get the book on amazon and such but I, i'd like to say something also about the whole thing about the guilt idea is that we assume when we say that that paul's culture was much like ours which is what's known as a guilt innocence culture and really it wasn't. I mean, we have such a huge focus on guilt here in the West and such in America. But if you go and look at the Bible, it said when it talks about guilt, it doesn't usually mean a feeling of guilt or something like that. It doesn't mean internal. It means real legal judicial guilt that you would be guilty of something objectively, regardless of how you felt. They were more concerned about your honor and your shame and for. Paul, Paul would have been growing in honor and reputation as a result of what he was doing. Yeah. Well, good. Yeah, that's a very good point. I know that uh, I'd heard you discuss that in the past, and I think that's relevant. I didn't actually explore that aspect of things, but uh, I like uh, what you're saying in that regard. Yeah. And I think we should also keep in mind that when you have things like bereavement hallucinations and such, that It'd be extremely rare when for someone to have a bereavement hallucination and then go and say, dig up the casket, they're alive. I know they're alive. They want my help. Yeah, exactly right. I think that you you would go from having a bereavement hallucination to a schizophrenic hallucination mm -hmm. because if you thought that he was um, alive again, again, you would be um, going into schizophrenia mm -hmm. at that point. And uh, again, these bereavement hallucinations were just very slight um, experiences. Like, for instance, uh, one example that one of the scholars gave was of someone who had lost his father. And then um, they see, in a race, they see someone that, that goes past their position where they're at observing a race. And it's like, well, that's my, that's my dad that just ran by. But then they go and, and see the guy again, and they realize, oh, that wasn't my dad. It was, it was just, I thought, for a second, it looked like my dad. Mm -hmm. Or uh, you know similar situations. So yeah, these bereavement um, quote hallucinations end of quote are just basically um, just very short experiences that they might have 
here and there as, as they progress through life after they've lost a loved one. And a lot of the professional literature was even going, is um, starting to say that because there are so many of these um, um, experiences that maybe there's something to it. Mm-hmm. And that it might not be a hallucination at all. And and this now this isn't Christian literature yeah. now. Yeah. And we could also say that what N.T. Wright would say in the ancient world, if you saw someone like that after they had died, it wouldn't convince you that they were alive. In fact, it would convince you of the opposite. It would definitely convince you that that person was dead. Right. You know what, Nick, you're right. And I think I actually quoted N.T. Wright. Mm-hmm. With that, and so that's sort of the format of this book as well. Is that what I do? Is I um, I put carriers' information in there um, as it is, and then I um, dig up the scholarly information on each subject of uh, dying and rising gods. I look at uh, the experts and what they say about these mythical characters, you know, and, and then I, again I look at the uh, the scholarly information on hallucinations, and I do a survey of that. And then what I'll do is I'll have cross-examining information, um, saying, um, okay, Carrier, well, this is what these authors say in opposition to what you're saying. And then what I'll do is I'll follow that up, the scholarly information, with actual accepted principles of evidence, and then I apply it in each case Mm -hmm. uh, to show whether Carrier, um, whether his arguments actually align with with these accepted principles of evidence. So, yeah, that's sort of the... uh, the way that I, I laid the book out. And if Carrier has written something that you think does count as a counter-reply, you put that also and then a further reply to it, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, thanks for pointing that out. So, yeah, so say Carrier makes a claim, scholarly literature, and then I'll do a cross-examination with other scholars, and then if Carrier has ever rebutted it, um, I'll put Carrier's rebutting of it, and then if another scholar has rebutted what Carrier says, then I'll put what he says. So you basically you have this back and forth going between scholars and also the evidentiary principles that I've mentioned. Well, let's talk about one more thing on the appearances at least, and this is one of my favorite ones to see as well, the whole cognitive dissonance idea. Yeah, I'll go ahead and develop that a little bit. The whole thing is that, you know, when people have these experiences where they... They have an event that goes against what they want to be true. They suddenly change the story, as it were, in order to save face, to not be embarrassed and such, and change the narrative in order to keep the movement alive. It's a way of dealing with a reality they don't want to accept. Okay, well, that's that's interesting because uh, I think what you would have to look at from an evidentiary perspective um, is how would that actually flesh out? How would that work out in the real world? Um, would people maybe hold this sort of belief, but then once threatened with death, wouldn't they give it up? Uh, for instance, I think of the uh, Watergate burglars and the whole uh, Nixon cover-up, and you have uh, people that um, started turning state's evidence um, once pressure was put on them. So basically you have people starting to jump ship from the Nixon administration and uh, because they they see that pressure is is mounting on them and then they all start becoming witnesses of the prosecution in order to save their own skins. So if you had somebody that was trying to save face, I think when it came 
time to um, say either worship Caesar or die, or um, they would definitely recant at that point because basically we know that people who believe that believe that something is alive will not die for it. And so that's a form of evidence. That's a form of circumstantial evidence. And what you have um, in Christian tradition are all of these disciples that are dying for their profession that Jesus Christ not only died but was um, risen from the dead and was also seen, touched, and experienced. And, of course, we uh, we can't forget the first skeptic that we see in the in the the New Testament of the resurrection, of course, was Thomas. Mm-hmm. And we know Christian, we know by Christian tradition that Thomas ended up being um, martyred in India. And by the way, if anyone is skeptical of the accounts, you know, I'll grant that some of the accounts of uh, the death of uh, the apostles aren't as good as others, but there are some that are really good. And if you're looking for information about we have interviewed Sean McDowell on this show who did write his dissertation on the deaths of the apostles and such. And something else about cognitive dissonance is that usually movements don't grow very much after the event takes place. They don't expand. Uh, well, but Christianity did just the opposite. It expanded greatly, and so much so that within three centuries, it had pretty much taken over the Roman Empire, and about three and a half centuries, it was the official religion of the Roman Empire. Yeah, Nick, I mean, and that's true, that's a good point, um, in that you have people who we see in the New Testament narratives were actually hiding from the Romans. Mm-hmm. You know, what accounts for them, all of a sudden, in Acts chapter 2, they're like, this Jesus whom you've crucified, he has arisen from the dead, and they're now they're, they're these bold leaders. And so what happened? Mm-hmm. What changed them from cowering uh, people that are fleeing um, and hiding from the Romans to ones that could care less about what the Romans or anyone else think and uh, powerfully proclaiming um, Jesus Christ as Lord? It's because they saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. They had an encounter and an, ex- and an experience with him. Um, and, and what accounts for James, right? the half-brother who was a skeptic early on, the, the Gospels, Jesus, come on, stop this stuff. It's embarrassing. And then all of a sudden you see in Acts where he's the chief pastor of the Jerusalem church. Mm-hmm. What accounted for this? Um, he saw the resurrected Jesus Christ, and we know that from Paul. Paul tells us the same. So we have this powerful, not only we've got this um, direct evidence from historical witnesses, but we also have this powerful circumstantial evidence. You've got uh, James, the, bro- the half-brother of Jesus, becoming um, the pastor. You have these, uh, these recluses that are hiding from the Roman coming bold leader new movement. You've got the Apostle Paul, um, who changed from um, persecutor to the chief missionary. This is powerful mm-hmm. circumstantial evidence. For our faith. Yeah, yeah, I've got a sister, and I can assure you she loves her brother very much. But if I started claiming I was the Messiah, she'd have me sent to the hospital saying he's suffering from Jerusalem syndrome. Please help him. <laughs> right, yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. Now, we, we've got about five minutes left before we start wrapping things up here. So you've looked at the case, you've looked at the evidence on these issues. Of course, you can't look at the evidence on every issue. There's still ever there's still further research to be done. You acknowledge that in your book. But what's your yes. verdict based on what we've got so far? I mean, 
think that, uh, of course, this was about uh, Dr. Carrier's um, attacks or objections to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What I see in this is that he's a very creative writer. He's a brilliant man, and I know he served our country in the Coast Guard. Um, he's got a, a very nice uh, education that, of course, he should be proud of, and he, he's a very active writer. Um, again, a great imagination, um, great, uh, you know, he's a great writer. He's, he says a lot of interesting and creative things. But I think from an evidentiary perspective, it seems to me that he doesn't really understand the nature of evidence, and he uses evidence in uh, his his writings. He uses the term evidence in his writings. And what I quickly realized is he doesn't really understand what relevant evidence is from an evidentiary perspective. So um, I don't think he really offers any uh, relevant evidence. Um, he doesn't offer um, um, facts based on proof. He doesn't have any historical witnesses for um, proving his case. Um, what he tries to prove about the New Testament writings is not in alignment with scholarly literature, particularly on the psychological um, works that we have coming from secular experts. Um, it doesn't match up his, uh, his alleged um, comparisons between Jesus Christ and these pagan gods. It doesn't match up um, with the uh, New Testament resurrection accounts and what these uh, mythical accounts say. So basically, he's got a lot of interesting information in here, but I don't think uh, he understands what evidence really is from an evidentiary uh, perspective. And I don't think, I think he fails to prove his points. Okay, if Carrier was listening to this, and he very well could sometimes, what does he need to do in response, Finn? Uh, well, I mean, I think he, I would say this. I mean, I'm obviously um, not as busy of a scholar as he is, and I don't um, think that, uh, that, my writing is probably as good as his is, but I think what I do is I understand is I understand evidence. I think he should really kind of um, explore what evidence is in uh, scholastic uh, law, and I think he should um, make himself acquainted with that and maybe sort of reproach um, what he has written in reference to uh, these different things, these different attacks on the resurrection. I think that's what he should do. He should just um, go back to the drawing board as far as just looking into what actual evidence is and what actual evidence isn't. Mm -hmm. And what would you say to his uh, fans out here on the internet who pretty much hang on his every word if they're listening? I mean, I would just uh, tell them to uh, I would actually, I mean, this sounds self-serving, but I really don't, because this is an academic work, I really don't get uh, money for this. Uh, it's just basically um, the pleasure of getting it distributed and to get it seen. I would say start by looking at this book, delve into what uh, Dr. Carey has actually said in, in relation to these different things, delve into accepted principles of evidence that are in this book, and just do your own assessment. Does he evidentially prove his case that's what i would say for them to do and i always like to people if you tell me you're a skeptic you need to be just as skeptical of your own side as you are of the other side or else you're just a selective skeptic well there you go well we don't have enough time to begin into another section um 
The book is An Evidentiary Analysis of Dr. Richard Carrier's Objection to the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Glad to know you went for a short title. <laughs> <laughs> and right, yeah. Go ahead. Right now, it's out only on paperback. The cost is 43 bucks. It, it is a lot, but that's that's typical for this kind of literature, isn't it? Yeah, and you know, Nick, you can actually get it on the WIPF and stock site, Whip and Stock, mm-hmm. and it's a little bit less. I think it's 34 there. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to have some publishers' copies pretty soon, and I, I think I can beat that. Mm-hmm. But if you're interested in in getting my price for it, you can uh, reach me at Ross at shieldyourfaith.org. Is it possibly going to be coming out in Kindle sometime? You know, I I did put that out. I think at some point it's going to be on uh, DVD mm-hmm. or uh, a CD-ROM of some sort, I was told, mm-hmm. with the uh, Evangelical Alliance. Uh, I don't think that it's actually out mm-hmm. now. Okay. Um, do you have a blog, an email, a website, way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Yeah. Hey, thanks a lot, uh, Nick. It's shieldyourfaith.org. And I do, uh, it's not just uh, the real technical things that we're talking about today. I, I try to, to make it culturally relevant, and, and I also try to uh, mix my career into it so with a sense of humor. So, yeah, shieldyourfaith.org. Go to the blog. And, again, ross at shieldyourfaith.org um, is how you would reach out to me by email. Mm-hmm. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave for a Deeper Waters audience? Well, I would like first to uh, say to you, Thank you very much, Nick, and thank you for your work, and thank you for giving me this opportunity. I really appreciate Mm -hmm. it, and I look forward to uh, maybe meeting you in person soon, Mm -hmm. and God bless you and all that you're doing. I know that you're uh, in this community. You're a valued uh, thinker and writer, so thank you, and thank you, Allie, um, for what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And also, um, I would just say for everybody, if you're a Christian, um, it, you know, you really need to, to check into these matters um, to make sure that your your faith is actually reasonable. And if you're an atheist, I would just or a skeptic, I would just encourage you to um, just look into these matters as well. And I think you would find that uh, the Christian faith is a reasonable faith. Yeah, I, I like that you thanked my wife as well, and I'm sure if she was listening, she'd say, "What I'm doing? What am I doing?" And I would reply and. We're saying that wives some seem to have no idea just how much support they give their husbands in ways they don't realize. Oh yeah, I mean, I, without my wife Andrea, I wouldn't have gone this far. Mm-hmm. Well, next thing I'd like to thank you for taking the time to come here, and I do hope to see you back here again sometime. Hey, thanks for having me, Nick. God bless, buddy. I'd like to remind everyone that uh, next time we're going to have Dr. Jim Payton on and Barnabas Powell of the uh, local Orthodox Church here. They're going to be having a Protestant Orthodox dialogue. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off.